Welcome to the Adamantium Podcast, episode number 46. I am your host, Adam R. Harrison, wishing you a happy belated St. Patty's Day. Which, as you may have heard on this podcast before, I come from an Irish family, and although St. Patty's Day is quite often uh, an excuse for people to get day drunk, I also you might also have heard on here that uh, I like to party, but I don't like to drink. So for me, St. Patty's Day is actually uh, a day to kind of reflect and appreciate that heritage, and I love that we get a full day to do that. So I hope you had fun. St. Patty's Day is a lot of fun. Everyone's always in a good mood. So I hope you enjoyed your parties if you went to one. And if you did, I hope you remembered to party responsibly. And also this past weekend on Saturday, uh, the day before St. Patty's Day was March 16th, 316. And 316 Day, to any, <laughs> to any pro wrestling fan out there, they're like, ah, say no more. But to anyone else listening... 316 Day is kind of like May the 4th to Star Wars fans. It's just a fandom appreciation day for wrestling fans, which you probably know that I am myself. Uh, I'll be going to WrestleMania next month, which I am super stoked for. Uh, And in the 90s, one of the biggest pro wrestlers, of course, was Stone Cold Steve Austin. And 316 is a reference to that famous Stone Cold Steve Austin speech. Talk about your psalms. Talk about John 316. Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. Which, to most listeners, that might just sound super blasphemic. Which, I'm a Christian myself, and I'm not offended, because really, it was just trash talk. A big part of pro wrestling uh, was trash talking your opponents. And Stone Cold Steve Austin was one of the absolute best at it. And if you watched pro wrestling in the 90s, Steve Austin was the guy. You know, now, if you watch it now, kind of people's popularity goes up and down. But at the time, everybody was behind Stone Cold. So I really enjoyed on Saturday, like my Instagram feed was just full of memes and highlights and memories from Stone Cold Steve Austin's career. Anyways, enough nerding out about wrestling for now. Let's nerd out about music. Last night, on top of being St. Patty's Day, was also a very important day for Canadian music because it was the 2019 Juno Awards, which I will admit in past years, I have neglected the appreciation and the importance of the Juno Awards, not because necessarily of who won what award, but more so just because of an overall appreciation for Canadian music. If you look through yesterday's list of nominees, there is some insanely talented musicians in there, and it is really important that As Canadians, we show to the world what kind of talent that we have um, because I think a lot of the world doesn't know. And maybe I'm just realizing it this year because of the podcast uh, and getting more involved in the music scene uh, and and even meeting um, several of the the past Juno winners and Juno nominees that it feels uh, more important to me this year. But really, it really is important. So um, check out the Juno Awards and check out the artists involved with the Juno Awards. That being said, I'd first like to send out a big shout-out to Adamant alumni Brett Kissel for winning Country Album of the Year. boy, And that brings us to today's episode, which features one of the artists nominated for Breakthrough Performer of the Year. His name is Grandson, and when I say he's a local, for me he really is a local because when we met we figured out that we actually went to the same high school. Except I 
was already in second year of university when he was starting grade nine, but we don't need to talk about that. And grandson is making huge waves right now. If you haven't heard him yet, I'm sure you will soon. His song Bloodwater from last year was a huge hit. Uh, in fact, I was at the Toronto FC game last night, the home opener, which, side note, was awesome. Way to go, boys. Starting off the season strong, 2-0, Josie with the late winner, amazing. But the point being, at the beginning of the game, Toronto's uh, promo song or whatever, the song that they came out to, like their pump-up song, was actually Bloodwater by Grandson. So, wicked job, buddy. He also just released his second EP, which is called A Modern Tragedy Volume 2, obviously a sequel to his first EP, called Modern Tragedy Volume 1, and he's got some great stories for you today on the podcast about where he came from and where he's going, and so I can't wait to share it with you. So, before we do, what we usually do here on the Adamantium Podcast when we have a musical guest is I like to share five song recommendations with the listeners so that they're not so familiar with that artist, they can at least have some recommendations they can go by. So first off, if you haven't heard it, you got to check out Bloodwater. Then I would check out his new single. It's called Apologize. Then three other songs I would check out are called, the first is called Despicable. The second one is called Bury Me Face Down. And the last song I'm going to recommend is called Thoughts and Prayers. And one last quick reminder before we start the podcast If you are listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please do hit that subscribe button and leave us a rating and a review if you would be so kind. Let's get some momentum and let's get ourselves on New and Noteworthy on iTunes. I know we're not new anymore, but I say we certainly are noteworthy. Or if you're a Spotify user, you can subscribe on Spotify. We're also on Google Play Music now. Uh, We're pretty much on everywhere you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. They're different handles, but if you search The Adamantium, we shall appear. All right, all right, all right. Let's get you introduced to Jordan Benjamin, better known as Grandson. Enjoy and have a great week, everyone. You're listening to episode 46 of The Adamantium Podcast. And that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. Jordan, thank you for joining us on the Adamantium Podcast. Woo! We're here. <laughs> With grandson? Yeah. Maybe. Am I allowed to call you Jordan? You or? can call me whatever okay. you want. Okay, all right. I'm glad you're calling. Um, yeah, man, local, local talent, which is great. That's our favorite. Yeah. And uh, we've already talked about going to the same high school. Shouts out. Northern Secondary, Dale Calendar, Mount Pleasant, go. and Eglinton. That's it. You already know. So we were neighbors, man. I know. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy ships in the night. Such and a big pass city. Without even knowing. I'd say it's such a big city. You can live in the same neighborhood as. Uh, there are some pretty notable. I think there are some cool people that graduated from Northern. Lots of cool people. I don't I know. I think like Eric Lindros went to Northern. Come on. <laughs> yeah, um, I think there's some others, but so. So I mean, we get a lot of a lot of most of our listener bases from Toronto. So tell us how someone like yourself got from or went from. Dear old Northern, yeah, to LA, to having Billboard chart charting hits. Thanks, know. man. Um, well, I would, I, I really point a lot of like where this all got started to my experiences growing up in Toronto. I can't speak to your time at Northern, but mm-hmm. for me, it was just this total um, 
like zoo. It was like totally just different people and cultures and ethnicities and people were bringing in their own music and smoking pot behind the corner store, right? You yeah, know, yeah. and and um so there was always music around. Um I grew up from like a musical family and writing, creative writing always were a natural way for me to express myself and to um, find a sense of identity. Uh, when, when you're at a school as big as Northern, mm-hmm. you're looking for something, or at least for me it felt natural to try to find something to make you who you are. Yeah. And um, there was always hip-hop around. I had started playing guitar and stuff, but it was really hip-hop music that that like was exploding at the time in that high school. Um, kids were like rap battling at at lunch breaks and this one kid would bring in his MPC and hook oh, it the up. South South End? Yeah, no, yeah, like the South Side <laughs> would they be bringing music in and then but I just remembered I, I, I just loved it. I loved the like punchline e um so did you take did you participate in the rap I started. Yeah. yeah, I started getting into like just writing a lot when I would go home and and we would put on the same instrumentals and I would have like an hour and a half between when I would get back from taking the 32 bus west yeah. on Eglinton. I would have like an hour and a half between getting home and my parents getting, getting home, home from work. Yeah. And in that time we would just like smoke pot, write, listen to music, yeah. play Mario Kart. Awesome. Watch the Drew Carey show. Yeah. yeah. Um, I had the same agreement. You know what I'm saying? I was a drummer, so it was like the hour and a half. That was my time to play the drums. Precious. I used to listen to documentaries on the art of rhyme, and I would try and freestyle about the stuff in my pockets and the stuff around the room. And it was those kind of like corny rap punchlines that would... That would evoke some sort of reaction, get people laughing or whatever, and I became kind of notorious around the school as being this, you know, weird, tiny little Jewish kid with my little Jufro and, like, <laughs> my braces, but they had bars or whatever, and that yeah. just became a, a, a source of pride for me, and I just wrote a ton. I was still beginning to write music, write songs about uh, girls in the school, whatever, but I always was so embarrassed by that stuff that I would just keep it completely yeah, yeah. separate. On my laptop or on my my my, my desktop, uh, I remember having like separate folders titled like rap lyrics and songs. Okay. Because I always viewed that sort of punchline-y stuff as just completely separate from songwriting, but... I was very um, self-conscious about doing that other thing. I didn't feel like I was good enough, and I, I, I was a pretty insecure teenager, but I put up a pretty good, confident persona okay. to kind of um, distract people from it, maybe. Yeah. So I, when I was, I think for my 15th or 16th birthday, my parents got me a, a, a keyboard, um, and it, it had Ableton, which is, uh, for people who don't know, it's like a tool that a lot of people use to produce and DJ on. Mm-hmm. So then I started making beats all the time, still writing every day, having local kids over to record. 
it was just it just became what I did. I was looking for a co-op placement. Northern had a co-op placement yeah. where you could do like basically slave labor for school credit. <laughs> I wanted to get some work at a studio, recording studio, but they couldn't find me anything, so I ended up uh, taking an internship at Virgin Radio at Young and St. Yeah, Clair. Yeah. And it's not there anymore. No, it's National not. media, right? Yeah, right, yeah. right. They kind of bulldozed it down, yeah. but I ended up getting totally... Uh, I, I, I couldn't stand doing the marketing side, the advertising side. Um, I would always, like, when no one was looking, try and go sneak off to the... Um, room where where they were recording the shows. I, I just wanted to be around, around creative yeah. people, around music. I was like stealing little prizes and stuff that were supposed to be for contest winners. I was just being a delinquent. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so that wasn't really cut out for me. But you know, high school comes to a close, and I wasn't yet confident enough. I didn't really have a clear sense of what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to impact people. So, but I think like a lot of kids in Toronto, I felt like what you do after high school is go to university. I also was privileged enough that my parents were able to cover my expenses mm-hmm. to go to university. I didn't have to take out some exorbitant loan or something. Yeah. So I applied to schools across Canada. Um, I knew I wanted to be in Montreal because I had spent a little bit of time there. My sisters went to school there and it seemed like a great spot for music, for culture, for the nightlife. It just felt entrepreneurial. Like yeah. like you can be an 18-year-old and hustle there. Mm-hmm. I felt like London or Kingston or Halifax. I had friends going there, but I just something about Montreal attracted me. And I got into McGill's education program. So I tried to convince myself that maybe I would be a teacher or something. And I kind of put music on the on the back burner for a little while. I think I kind of felt like, okay, this got me where I was going. And I think in the back of my head, I expected when I got to to that much bigger um, ecosystem at mm-hmm. McGill that I would meet other musicians that were so far beyond my um, capacity to write or something. I just assumed that I was going to have my imposter syndrome kind of confirmed. Mm-hmm. But when I got there, I... I would get into the same, you know, stoned hip-hop ciphers on the porch at Molson Hall. Yeah. And I still felt like I liked doing this. Around that time, I was I was really into Ultimate Frisbee at the time. The high school team at Northern was, like, competing in nationals. I played on the team. Yeah. You did. Know, Before, did. we didn't. I don't think we made it that far that year. But we yeah. actually had this, like, really good yeah. team. And I used to, like, love doing that. Football was just too, like, too aggressive. And I had yeah. all this, like, beef. I got, like, jumped by one of the guys on the team. Jeez, and I was just like, yeah. get me out of here. Yeah. But I remember going to McGill. And it was between doing the Frisbee team. And then my sister's partner's little brother was in a fusion acapella. Okay. Which was this acapella group that did hip-hop and soul covers stuff like Lauren Hill and the Fugees and yeah, Alicia yeah. Keys. And I had been doing some beatboxing and singing. So, uh, she, at her insistence, I went and auditioned and it, I thought it was going to be this like nerdy stepbrothers esque, you yeah, know, yeah. kind of dorky ensemble. But I actually thought it was kind of cool. I like took on this, uh, mentor in one of the guys in the group and that was my first inclination that, like, I really love music and I really want to be surrounded by people that get me better at it. Yeah. And I think 
I had spent a lot of time. I don't know why I'm going so deep here. No, why do not? it, man. That's the whole point. I had spent a lot of time in high school feeling pretty apathetic, pretty ambivalent. Yeah, like yeah. I'm just going through the motions because that's what you do. Um, as far as math or science or languages went, I never thought big enough to apply like how is this going to change what is this going to do for me if the point was just to like do it because you can get good grades that just was never an effective motivating tool for me i was just like well Mm -hmm. fuck fuck you then you know i just won't get good grades then now what but music started revealing itself to me as the first thing that i really didn't need anybody else's explanation for why i wanted to achieve something with it and i just felt like this is how i express myself I have a natural disposition for it um, because of my family, because of whatever. Um, and the f- process of getting better filled something up in me and made me want to keep doing it. Um, I started, I continued doing the acapella thing. I started kind of writing again, but not really. And I started DJing, doing like hip hop nights at local dive bars around Montreal, around on St. Laurent. And, uh, Started putting together at the insistence of a couple friends around my second year in school. I started putting together some songs and going, okay, I'm going to put out a, a, an EP or something and who knows. Mm-hmm. Um, so we put out these demos um, that thankfully have been kind of scourged from the internet. Uh, <laughs> really, really embarrassing, but they were a start, you know, and... Uh, a friend had an internship at a music blog. He gets one of the songs on the music blog, and somebody in Los Angeles was doing A and R, kind of like scouting, basically. Really? And they were on that blog looking for totally different music. Mm-hmm. He had never even been on that website before that one particular day, and I had never been on that website as a featured artist before yeah, that one yeah. particular day. And it just kind of serendipitously happened, yeah. and. A week or two later, I got an email with an, uh, saying that they liked it. I was convinced it was like going to be fake or yeah, something. Yeah. Like, what, what are your ulterior motives here? But sure enough, they invited me to come to Los Angeles um, and work for... I had never even heard or really thought about finding work as a songwriter for other mm-hmm. artists. I had never really taken... Um, working with other producers or writers on my own music that seriously before that. And uh, so at that point, I had transferred to Concordia for communications because I knew that I didn't want to be a teacher. I was thinking maybe if I get this communications degree, number one, I can keep everyone off my ass for an extra couple of years yeah. before I have to figure out who I am. And number two, maybe I'll get a job at the radio station or at a label or mm-hmm. something that creative or kind of creative. And um, so I deferred from one semester at Concordia, and I went down to Los Angeles to just try to see what that felt like, Mm -hmm. and uh, I never went back to school. And I just kind of felt this curiosity where there was, it was pretty obvious to myself and to everyone else involved that I didn't yet know who I was or what I was doing. It wasn't, that project was never going to be the thing that... Mm -hmm launched my career or or anything because I think you have to know yourself before anyone else can get to know you. But I guess those people at that time in my career recognized that there was some sort of uh, potential to build on. And I felt this real sense of if I do this thing, 
and it doesn't work out, then I'll be right back here. Mm-hmm. Maybe it'll be in two years or three years, but I'll be back in school. Right, but it felt like an important thing that I just had to see through. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of people really understood that or, or were that supportive of it. Thankfully, my family was supportive mm-hmm. of that, um, which, again, I, I, I see as like a huge, huge blessing. And that was five years ago. And then I spent two years in L.A. just kind of getting my sea legs and trying shit, failing and trying again and failing again. And I think from this frustrated, dejected place and maybe from my experience writing for other artists, I finally figured out what I was willing to fail at, how I was willing to put myself out there. And so much of my artistic and musical careers had to do with this kind of gimmick feeling that Mm -hmm. first inspired me in the halls of Northern. Right. That sense of like, look at this dorky looking kid, you know, who's actually got some sort of flow or something. Mm -hmm. And I was really sick of that. And I really realized that I wanted to be taken seriously. I was just really sick of this bullshit where I felt like I couldn't tell if people were laughing with me or at me. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to like scream into a microphone, smash a guitar and say, fuck Donald Trump. And I really wanted to take it more seriously. And, um, I didn't want to, I had been making music at that point, very much inspired by Mac Miller and Asher Roth and, just like white dude rap stuff. But even those artists had been reinventing themselves, taking themselves more seriously. And I was stuck in 2009 and 2013. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I knew that I didn't want to go from trying to be one artist to now just going and trying to be Nirvana or something. I knew I wanted to, if I was going to take on and reopen that songs folder that had long been covered in dust on my laptop. If I was going to take on singing and, and putting out music that was more serious, I wanted to make sure that I brought elements of hip-hop and the music I was DJing in Montreal with mm-hmm. me. Um, so that's my long-winded answer for it how actually, I got here. You also answered, in that answer, another one of my questions was, how did you kind of become this mash of genres, mm-hmm. you know, and you kind of just explained it right there. Yeah, I took this detour was, through, and it, it yeah. and I think that that answer takes me through that very formative time in my life, through Northern, mm-hmm. through Toronto, and then through Montreal. So what were you doing in L.A. to kind of... I mean, if you're saying you're trying things, you're failing until you, mm-hmm. you know, finally found what was right for you. What were you doing to, you know, pay your bills and stuff right. like that? Did you have to That's take a on good question. several day jobs? And no, I was I was really lucky that I didn't. Um, I had gotten a small advance from that management team to okay. kind of keep me afloat for the first year, and off of the reputation of the CEO of that company, Mm -hmm. I was able to get a small publishing deal and a small recording contract. And so I was taking the advances of those and just stretching them as far as Mm -hmm. I could. And it meant, you know, I would never go out. I was never treating myself. I would never go on vacation or anything. I just was ultra, ultra conservative. Mm -hmm. And I would just be alone for huge parts of every day, just smoking weed uh, working on music. And at one point I had to 
go to my family and my older sister um, was willing to at one point be paying my phone bill, okay. helping me get groceries. Um, and that stuff was really, really difficult for me and it was really embarrassing. But again, I had an incredible amount of privilege to yeah, even yeah, have yeah. that sort of support. Um, but I was, I had really, I really looked at, and I think this was very naive and I wouldn't give anybody this advice now, but I really looked at getting a day job as, as kind of like, uh, conceding or something. Okay. Yeah. And I think that was really dumb because I really needed the money and I didn't have it mm-hmm. and I could have used it. Yeah, yeah. But I had convinced myself like, you're not going to work another day in your life. Yeah. So whatever. So I spent like at least six months there, you know, looking over my shoulder, trying mm-hmm. to figure out how I'm going to pay rent this month. And, uh, I actually started a company with a roommate at the time selling photography tools cause he was a photographer and we had this idea for a company that actually made a couple grand in the first mm-hmm. couple months. So that helped. But, uh, yeah, it was just this kind of mishmash where I just kind of jumped and I kind of built my wings on the way down and just mm-hmm. tried to, I tried to just hold on as long as I could because I really felt like luck happens to the people that are in, that are there. Yeah. I didn't know how it was going to happen or what it was going to look like or sound like, but I knew that it wouldn't happen if I went home and gave up. Mm-hmm. So even though it was obvious that this hip hop thing wasn't going to necessarily pan out, even when it was obvious to everyone else that, uh, you know, I was asking questions about maybe I should have stayed in Montreal. There were some opportunities there with other bands and other artists that maybe I, I should have leaned into, but I, uh, it was because I was there continuously putting myself out there, making music, trying to meet people that I was able to meet my manager, meet Crispin, who introduced me to Boone, Kevin mm-hmm. Hissink, who is without a doubt the most influential person on my career and um, influential person on me creatively, who would later go on to become the co-writer and collaborator with me on every single Grand Sultan. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's it. Meant to be. Yeah, kind of, but like also not, you you know, I don't, I don't see it as meant to be. Okay. I think that it was meant to be because, because I made made this shit happen. You know, I, we spun this narrative. Whereas if I had, um, left at the end of 2015 when the writing was on the wall or, if I had done Grandson at a time where rock and roll was out of vogue or mm-hmm. wh- whatever, you know, if people, it's so fickle and that, that I had the luck of um, making music that felt authentic to me that was also in the right place at the right time. Right. I guess to some people that is, all those factors in themselves are meant to be, but I also think it might send um, a toxic message to creative people wondering why they haven't right you know I think that the narrative of like this overnight thing where it just kind of happened and it was destiny um, I think it undercuts a lot of the very deliberate effort that I and the team around me put in of course and and even now as uh, like a song like Apologize is starting to take off or Mm -hmm. or or as these things are happening to my career that give this um, perception of momentum that I have this 
huge infrastructure around me of mm-hmm. management and the label and the guys I tour with and there's this huge village that goes into this idea that is grandson and I'm just one part of that mm-hmm. thing my role in it is being the guy being the face of it mm-hmm. but um, but yeah it's only meant to be because I made it happen and because these other people that, made it meant to be exactly much. Yeah. that's what I was getting at so you mentioned your parents are, or your family is musical as well. Mm-hmm. Your parents are musicians, or yeah, yeah. My mom was a piano teacher. Um, when when I was a kid, she was always kind of playing the piano. My father was in bands and a solo artist, and would write musicals. He always had a little studio space set up somewhere around the house, and he used to be working on rock operas, ballads. I would come downstairs as early as I can remember and there would be storyboards of cue cards just like those kind of plastered on the wall with a keyboard underneath. And so it was always around. And my sisters have uh, really, really great taste. In in my, I mean, in my opinion, they were listening to all sorts of music and they went to Vaughn Road so they were bringing home uh, early clips and Tribe Called Quest and they went to high school with Drake, so they were bringing home his early mixtapes yeah. and Dave Matthews Band and Dispatch and Red Hot Chili Peppers. So there was this very eclectic mishmash as well as yeah. a lot of dancehall music and R&B and um, all those things kind of found their way um, into my ears at, a, at, at that really, really formative time. And... I was always encouraged to write and I was always made to feel like my voice matters. And I think that um, not enough kids feel that way. Mm -hmm. A lot of people feel that either it's all been said before or who gives a fuck, but it's really important to feel significant. Mm -hmm. And I would listen to music and I always felt like I was being spoken to through that music. Through the artist, yeah. And when I hear music that is evocative, even still, my instinct is to speak back, is mm-hmm. to take a little piece of that and bring it into a new song that I'm working on or formulate some sort of response. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so... Yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with like nurture and versus yeah. nature, and um, yeah, I did have a lot of music. And then, <clears throat> because now your your music's become very political, mm-hmm. and so what? At what point did that start to really affect? I guess you mentally that you felt you, I need to write about right. this. I think it was a couple things. I think that again, I think I, it has to do a lot with timing. I think it has to do with um, that feeling. I wanted to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm somehow my songs started getting more political and they started getting more bloody. Like, mm-hmm. so many of my songs ended with some sort of shootout, standoff, carnage. Um, and this was around, like I said, the end of 2015 where the primaries were beginning to rev up, Yeah, um, where Bernie Sanders was beginning to rise to prominence where Donald Trump was beginning to um, stop being laughed at and started being a little more terrifying and dystopian. And it just felt... um, I started feeling like to 
once I realized I had strong opinions, it felt like to not address these things was to a certain opinion in and of itself. Mm-hmm. I felt like when this feels like such an important time in our history, in our relationship of journalism and entertainment blending, it felt like, um, it just felt like my apathy would speak volumes. And, and one day when I was looking back at this time, I wanted to be able to um, have something to show for it and, and, sh- and, and have stood on the right side of history. So that just made sense with where I was going and it, I wasn't thinking that anybody was going to hear any of this mm-hmm. shit. I think that's an important other component of this was it's like it's still like that 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 songs folder on your right laptop. exactly yeah. it was still and I was doing this as a response to spending two years in Los Angeles with no one listening to my music right so it was really just a therapeutic cathartic space for myself to feel like here's something real that I'm prepared to take home and, and do from my parents' basement in Toronto if right. I have to. Um, and I think that's why the early songs like Bury Me Face Down and Kiss Bang were a little less overtly political. And it was really when that music started taking off and it was when I started touring, actually, where I would meet people and hear their stories. Mm-hmm. And that feedback that I got um, that made me recognize the opportunity I have to be a, a, a space for kids to um, hear that their feelings are valid, mm-hmm. um, to hear a progressive voice echoed back at them, especially in the middle of Canada, in the middle of the United States, where these opinions might not be as widely accepted or might not be echoed in your um, conventional um, authority figures where mm-hmm. you might not have your parents or your teacher or your pastor reflect right. these views. It's important for a kid to hear that shit, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, you know, and I started picking up fans who were ideologically so different and who had such a different lived experience than I did. And there was something so beautiful about that. Uh, and I just wanted to fan that fire that seemed to kind of happen on its own so some of it is deliberate uh, but a lot of it was just trial and error and just trying to get closer and closer to purpose to what feels fulfilling and and answer that question that I've always had of why I'm doing what I'm doing okay so expanding on that you just you just released modern tragedy volume yes. two Congra- sure first did. of all congratulations you, it's awesome and how How does volume two then kind of extend the story you were aiming to tell from Mm -hmm. volume one? I kind of anticipated uh, right as we started, my first music was just single by single for the first like year or so. Mm -hmm. And it became obvious that we wanted to begin to put together more cohesive projects, but I wasn't yet ready to do a full album. I felt like I still wanted to introduce people to who I am and I didn't want to yet tackle that sort of more long form body of work so it began as this kind of introductory thing where volume one felt like a state of the union it felt like this here's where it's at politically it spoke to opioid use and it spoke to gun violence and 
um, our collective social responsibility and accountability and our relationship to the environment. And then I snuck a song called Despicable on there as a sort of personal mental health story. But from the onset of this project, I knew that I wanted to tell my own story as well as tell the stories Mm -hmm. around me. So I think that in some ways expanding through volume two was spending a little more time coming from my heart and less from my head of what's going on around me. And so I have songs like, is this what you wanted and fallen that speak to what's going on inside of me in this, you know, new chapter of my life as a touring musician. Um, it speaks to vice and temptation and, um, apathy and narcissism and ego and ego death. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that way, it is a continuation. It also reflects some new influences um, because I spent so much time being a hip hop fan and then an electronic music fan. Um, I hadn't really spent much time with rock and roll, and 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 Kevin had introduced me to um, some more new metal this time around. We were listening to System of a Down mm-hmm. and even some Limp Bizkit. Uh, we were listening to um, the Deftones. So the music kind of took on a little bit of a darker theme um, sonically. And then as far as from a lyrical perspective, um, I think some of the storytelling on Volume 2 is a little more nuanced. Okay. I think that I hit people over the head a little less directly with gotcha. what this yeah, one's yeah. about. Okay. Um, I think it's a little more open to interpretation and it's a little more um, you can kind of define it for yourself. And that for me was 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 a, a new concept that I was mm-hmm. looking forward to. So that's where we're at. So explain to me the image imagery of the double X's. Sure. So I guess as um, a lot of these kind of conventional narratives I had latched on to growing up and through um, my teenage years of that the good guys win and the, the authority figures that are running this whole show have this all figured out and if you do the right things you'll be rewarded. A lot of that was kind of collapsing around me, happening on the political stage, it was happening with my music career, it was happening where I was watching bad things happen to good people in my social life. There was a lot of this sort of like um, loss of innocence that might have been happening on some level and just just kind of like the veil being lifted as I was transitioning into my 20s and I guess that I wanted that disillusionment that was so prevalent in the music I was writing to be reflected in the um, aesthetic, I guess, of the project. And I was a huge fan of like Pokemon and Dragon Ball Z and like cartoons growing yeah, up. Yeah. And whenever a character would like faint or pass out or get hit, yeah. yeah, they kind of had the X's on the eyes. So for me, it did. It just rep- represented that that disillusionment. Um, and so for the logo, we just found some picture of me when I was like six years old, carved out the little outline yeah. and threw the X's on the eyes and didn't think that much of it. And a lot of these decisions between the logo and the name that ended up being like so, such lightning rods mm-hmm. were made very, very fast, very impulsively. Yeah. And um, it's cool to watch those sorts of 
um, this uh, ideas um, take on new meaning to different people, mm-hmm. and watching these different fans find different meaning and significance in it. And that's why sometimes I am reserved about telling anybody what something's about because mm-hmm. right. I can explain what it meant to me, but however anybody interprets that's what it's a about. song like yeah. Love Water or what these exes mean, they're entitled to that. Yeah. You know, uh, that's that's what music is. That's what art is. I think to to some level at its foundation, it is a service to those who consume it. Yeah. So I think part of that is not telling anybody they're right or wrong for how they interpret it. Very cool. Uh, one thing that that spoke out to me or jumped out to me a lot because my very first rock and roll concert was Linkin Park's Meteora Tour. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Where was that? I was in Toronto? 15. I was 15 at the time. It was Linkin Park, P.O.D., Hoobastank, yep. and Story of the Year. Wow. It was ACC. Yeah. It was my first rock and roll show. Now, like 300 shows later. Wow. Uh, yeah. No shit. Yeah, yeah. Um... But yeah, so you did running, running, uh, running from my shadow with Mike Shinoda. Mm-hmm. How did you get connected with Mike, and how was that experience? Well, I, I can't say enough about about Mike, um, about how pure his creativity is, about how raw his artistry is. This far into his career, with so much to show for it, that mm-hmm. he's still writing and creating with as voracious an appetite as ever. Um, he's also has his ears on the pavement as much as any music fan I know. And Mike found Bloodwater, I don't even know how. I think it was on like a Spotify playlist or yeah, something. Yeah. And he followed me on social media and shared the song without having ever wow. met me, without yeah, yeah. it it wasn't on some behind the scenes industry shit at all. It was just him as a curator and fan discovering something that he thought was cool. So you just and I was like completely floored by that, of course. Yeah. I, I, I thought so you just that, one day randomly got a message from yeah, Mike Yeah, I, I remember like, I was like on speakerphone with my mom just kind of, uh, we were we were just catching up and I was scrolling around on social media and I saw on Twitter that like Mike Shinoda had followed me. And I had assumed at first it was a fan page. Yeah. And then I realized it wasn't. And then I assumed it was a uh, Maybe like a PR person, somebody that's mm-hmm. paid to run the social media. But either way, I thought I should at least reach out. Um, and it was right when I was um, trying to figure out whether to sign with a major label or not. Mm-hmm. I was trying to figure out where and how to set boundaries with my relationship to my fans. And I had all this shit that I was trying to navigate that I did not have anybody who had been through it before to bounce right. any of these ideas off of. So I really felt like I was searching for a mentor, searching for a kind of older brother mm-hmm. to take me under their wing. And then all of a sudden the, like the goat on the uh, firmly yes, on yeah. the Mount Rushmore of electronic hip hop, rock, everything, yeah. everything yeah. that I stood for, um, reaches out in this way. So I reached out to him on Instagram and I basically just said, number one, thank you for what you've done for music and genre bending. And yeah. I think in a lot of ways I get to do what I do because him and, and Lincoln Park and Fort Minor kind of paved the way for that. Yeah. And then I also articulated right off the bat that I did not expect or want anything from 
um, from this relationship that I would love the opportunity to pick his brain, but that I'm not reaching out with these ulterior motives right. on my sleeve. Um, I really just wanted to have an informal, um, space where I could maybe get some sort of answers to these questions that I have. And he ended up being just as humble, um, easygoing and cool as you would hope that my chinero would be. So we went out for breakfast one time, just kicked it. Super low-key dude, like no one even recognized him. He pulled up with a baseball cap low, like some cool kicks on, just being Mike motherfucking Shinoda. And uh, yeah, we just got talking. He told me all these stories about LP and Rick Rubin and and, uh, his relationship to fans and his relationship to his wife and we just kind of became fast friends and he invited me and Boone to his studio in Los Angeles where he pay, played played us um, that, that at the time unreleased um, post-traumatic album. Yeah. And there were some songs that made the cut that were unfinished, some that never ended up making the cut, but one of which was that um, idea running from my shadow where he had already written the chorus and his verses but he didn't have a clear sense of where it was going to go from there. He alluded to maybe getting a feature for it. I think originally when we came in, we were going to try and start something from scratch, but it just kind of spoke to me, and I had been going through a really difficult breakup at the time with my ex-girlfriend, and I think at the time I was really um, scared of confirming these feelings I had about myself Mm. that I was unable to hold space for somebody else. I had these like narratives in my head that I was putting myself through this difficult relationship um, partially to prove to myself that I wasn't those demons. Right. And part of moving on was understanding that they are just a part of me and stop trying to run from them. So just the narrative in general just spoke to me in that song. And I asked if we could kind of sit with it for uh, 20, 30 minutes and, and we bang, banged out that section and to this day he remains one of my biggest supporters wow. and it's That's really awesome. been surreal to be to be um, on the receiving end of such like unbelievable generosity and like humility and mentorship exactly. and mentorship like needed from it yeah. and I've been able to work with like since then I've been able to work with AWOL Nation Tom Morello and I've got to speak to so many talented creative people pick their brains and um, I would love to be able to do that for the next generation and when I get to hang with dudes like Cleopatrick mm-hmm. the Dubé kids up and coming rock yeah, music yeah. out of Toronto or out of Ontario um, I try and be as accessible and and take those lessons that I learned from those OGs, you yeah. know, and it's just, I'm just so, so fucking lucky. Awesome, man. And my last, to wrap up, kind of. Bummer. You, I know. We can do eh? this all day. I know, I know. Um, unfortunately, you got more places we to We got a lot of shit to do. Yeah. Um, <coughs> you'll be back here in a few weeks in Ontario, I think, anyways, because you got a Juno Award coming right. up, or right. a, a nomination anyways. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. How is how is for I like that artist. Freudian slip, dude. There you I go. like it. Let's, there you go. Pause your energy. It, that is. And uh, does that feel surreal? Like, what is that? Yeah, like? it's a. It's been a. What does really that mean to you? Cool you know, like, fucking thing. It's a reminder to me. I think I've spent so much time in in the United States um, touring, uh, living in Los Angeles the past five years, 
um, advocating against Donald Trump and against the populist, fascist rhetoric that is so prevalent in the United States. I think some people either um, underestimate how proud I am to be Canadian or aren't aware that I am a dual citizen, a proud dual citizen. And this Juno recognition was just a small but very, very meaningful thing for me to show I'm proud of my Canadian roots and I am proud to be a part of this um, new wave of Canadian rock music, mm. alternative music, whatever you want to call it. There's something really cool happening here. Um, I think people in the past five years or so have cued in that there's something special going on in Canada in the hip-hop and R&B scenes. Yeah. Producers in Canada have been receiving a lot of notoriety, but I think that alternative music and rock music and indie pop had all been kind of slept on, whereas now I think that's starting to take the global stage as well. And it's cool. It's certainly not why I do what I do. Right. Um, of course. It's yes. for the kids that are going to show up at the opera house. It's for um, that girl that was first in line right. that we bumped into yeah. on our way in here six to ten hours before the show. Yeah. Um, but it's cool. It's cool. My mom gets to be proud of it. Yeah. We'll put the little certificate. I've heard certificate. the whole experience is a lot of fun, too. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. it runs directly through my tour schedule, so I don't know what I'm going to be able to be here right. for. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I know why I'm doing this, and we're going to keep it moving, but um, every single one of these sorts of milestones that I have invested a lot of energy into as being a destination has revealed itself to be pretty hollow. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to diminish um, what the Juno Awards signify or what they mean, but I just think it's really important, especially if there are musicians that are listening, um, it's important to remind people that none of this feels as good as being your authentic self. Yeah. None of it feels as good as um, making the music, as being surrounded by like love and community. Um, so I'm trying not to put these sorts of accomplishments or milestones on too much of a pedestal. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is important to stop and enjoy the, um, the stuff along the way, and it's really important to share it because if it wasn't for Boone, if it wasn't for my manager and me, if it wasn't for the work that the Warner team are doing with and for me, then this would not be possible. And um, if I'm not going to do it for myself, I'll do it for them. Yeah. And I'll show up and I'll be really grateful. Win or lose, it's going to be a fun thing. And it's been really cool to be able to come back to Canada as a Juno-nominated mm-hmm. artist. Yeah, very cool. That's it, man. That's that's all I can say. We just got to keep it going, and I try and take this shit one day at a time, and, and I'm just happy to do it. The best music is out in front. Join the grandkids or get the fuck out of our way. That's it. <laughs> that's it. Never, I've never heard better summarizing words. Thanks, <laughs> Jordan. It, man. Thank you. All right, grandson. Thank you, everyone. Woo! Adamantium.